Hello and welcome from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This podcast you're about to hear was recorded at our Burrigan campus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what God has to say to you. Yes, Lord, we come before you this morning and we look to you, our living hope. We lift up the name of Jesus in this place and we recognize that if not for you and for your goodness, Father, none of this would be a reality. We come before you and we have this opportunity. We can do it boldly. All of that is because of the sacrifice that you made, that on the cross the curtain was torn in two and the way was open for us as a people, as one people, to come before our God and King, to encounter him, to not have to do it through some kind of mediator, but to do it just us coming before you. And to know that Jesus stands there as our great high priest, to know that even now, that you are our representative before the Father, to know that you continually pray for us. Your heart is always for us. You are our great living hope. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus this morning and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray, Father, that we would truly be humble, open, that our hearts would be fertile soil. And we do pray, Jesus, that you would challenge us. And that's not always comfortable, but it's what we desire because we want to step deeper into life, deeper into relationship with you. And so we do pray. We invite you into this space. As we've already sung, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We pray, Jesus, that you truly would be at work in this place. That we wouldn't just be going through the motions. It's another Sunday, but that it truly would be us as a community encountering our God and our King, being challenged been drawn closer this is our heart and so we pray for it in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said amen amen amen. you can take a seat fantastic let me move this thing well good morning everyone and welcome to church this is week six of our series walking with God and the title of my message this morning is let my people go You know, the plagues are one of the more well-known parts of Scripture, but they're also one of the more difficult parts of Scripture. And I'm assuming that most of you here this morning would know the general flow of the story. It's one that each and every one of us gets taught as we come through MPKs. We kind of know the story of the plague, but I also know there's a good possibility that actually there's a whole lot of us here this morning that don't really understand it or don't even really know why it's there. Every story, every passage of scripture is there for a reason. We believe that. That God is revealing himself to us, his people. And he's inviting us to step into deeper relationship. He's challenging us. Challenging our sinful rebellion. So what is God challenging? What is he revealing through the plagues? Well, I think the key is actually way back in chapter 5. We skipped over chapter 5 in this series. We went straight from chapter 4 to chapter 6. But if you look at chapter 5, and you can open up your Bibles, if you look at chapter 5, it starts like this. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh replied, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, this is Moses and Aaron, but the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And just to summarize the rest of that, Pharaoh basically says, I don't care. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? If you're taking notes this morning, write that down because that question underpins this entire story. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The plagues are God's answer to that question. Who am I? This is who I am. It's the whole point of the plagues. So we need to keep that as our foundation this morning. Now on a surface level, we understand that question. It's the same question that most Aussies are asking themselves as they walk past a street preacher. They hear it, they just don't care. You're quoting a book at me that I don't even believe in. Okay. That at most basic level, that's where Pharaoh is at. But there's a little bit of nuance that I want us to grab hold of this morning. You see, Pharaoh lived in a pluralistic, polytheistic society. So he would have had no issue with the religious nature of the Jewish people. He actually would have expected it. You say that you've met with God, that he's spoken to you. Okay, so what? The Egyptians have 114 gods. Pharaoh himself was considered a god, the son of Ra. He would have been fine with all of that. It would have fit perfectly within his worldview. You have a God, fantastic. You want to meet with that God? Be my guest. But don't think for a second that your God has authority over me. That's the issue. It's the core of it this morning. Now you can believe whatever you want, but don't tell me how to live my life. Don't put your ethics, your morals on me. I'm a God and I do what I want. And here we are 2,000 years later and the truth is not much has changed. You want to be religious? Go right ahead. None of us believe in objective truth anyway. So you've got your truth and I've got mine and that's absolutely fine as long as you keep it to yourself. That's our world. That's Australia 2022. But that's Pharaoh. That's where he's at. Now, there's a version of that trap that you and I fall into as well. You might think, oh, that's not, that can't be right, but there is. Do I believe in God? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Do I believe that he's good? Yeah, I believe that. I mean, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? But are there parts of my life that I've made clear to God are absolutely off limits Times where I don't actually want to hear what he has to say because I'm afraid of what it means for me. Well, uh, maybe. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's just as relevant for you and me this morning. Now, Isaiah 44 says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no other. That's who the Lord is. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. And God is revealing that not just to Pharaoh, but to the world. He says exactly that in chapter 9, but then he goes even further than that in chapter 10. 
He says, I'm doing this for your children and your children's children that you might know that I am the Lord. That's the intent. That's the heart of God. And does that make the plagues any less brutal? No. I just think that the Lord is more concerned with our eternal good than he is our present comfort. So he's willing to humble us. He's willing to bring us low if that opens our eyes to the reality of who he is. It doesn't make the plagues any easier to read, but maybe it helps us understand the heart of God behind it. As Matt Chandler says, it's the mercy of God that reveals to you that you've bet your life on the wrong horse. That's not his wrath, that's his mercy. So here's what I want to do this morning, because it's not going to look like a normal Baptist sermon. We're not even going to read a passage together, which sounds almost heretical, I know, but we will be using the Bible, I promise, but we're going to be jumping all over the place this morning, because I don't know if you noticed, but Nick gave me four chapters, four. (laughs) We'd be here for 30 minutes just reading the passage together. I don't think anybody would stay, so we're just going to be jumping around this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the general pattern of the plagues because they all follow a familiar rhythm. If you read it, you'll be able to see that. Then I want to narrow in on Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart because I think that's something that we often struggle with. It's incredibly important. And then lastly, I want to look at the plagues themselves and what they teach us about Yahweh, the great I am and what that means for us this morning. So if you read Exodus chapter 7 through to Exodus chapter 11, and you go through the 10 plagues, and I encourage you to do that sometime this week, you'll see a pattern, a rhythm that flows through all 10 of the plagues. And it'll start with Moses and Aaron, and as they go to Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And we see that line in almost every plague. God is warning Pharaoh, but he's even more importantly, he's giving him a chance to repent. And we need to keep that in mind. It's really important. And the plagues kind of grow in intensity as they go along. So the earlier ones, like the frogs and the gnats and the flies, they would have been incredibly annoying. I mean, don't get me wrong, this is some soul-destroying, joy-sucking stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, they weren't that big of a deal. It's the later plagues that really crushed the nation of Egypt. And yet every step of the way, God is giving Pharaoh a chance to repent. Every step of the way. Every third plague, Moses skips that part and unleashes a new plague. We're not really sure why that is, but it's a distinct pattern in the story. Every third plague, there is no warning. He just unleashes a new plague Maybe that's there to remind us that repentance is a gift. God doesn't have to give us grace. He chooses to because that's his heart. That's who he is. But he doesn't have to. I'm not really sure, but maybe that's what it's there for. So Moses and Aaron will go to Pharaoh and they'll say, let my people go. And then they'll explain to him, if you refuse, this will happen. And then Pharaoh would do exactly that because he's not ready to let go. 
And in response to that, Aaron, or in the later plagues, Moses will stretch out their staff or they'll strike it into the Nile or whatever, and God will do exactly what he said he would. And I think it's worth saying, I don't think the plagues are random. I think God is symbolically crushing the gods of Egypt, but we'll get back to that later. So God sends a plague, and then Pharaoh's magicians try to replicate that on a smaller scale with varying degrees of success. And then Pharaoh will either come to Moses and ask him to undo what Yahweh has just done, promising to let the people go, only to kind of renege on that later. It's a bit awkward when he does it like six or seven times. Or he'll double down and say, no, I won't do it. I won't bend the knee to this God of yours. I'm not letting go. And all the while these people are suffering and Egypt as a nation is collapsing. That's the general pattern, the rhythm that we see through the 10 plagues. But underneath all of that, there's almost a subplot. And we know that Pharaoh is a hard-hearted man. But in chapters 9, 10, and 11, there's four references to the fact that God is actually hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, let's be honest. We don't really know what to do with that. Is it actually Pharaoh's fault if God is hardening his heart? Is it fair? I mean, we cling to the righteousness and the justice of our God, but that doesn't sound just. So how do we deal with this? Well, firstly, I'm going to follow in the footsteps of our fearless leader. And just like Nick, I'm going to say, I don't fully understand this. I don't. See, I believe in free will. I really do. I think that's the whole point of the tree in the Garden of Eden. Are you going to trust me with morality? Are you going to trust me to define good and evil? Are you going to try to play God and define it for yourself? I believe in free will. I believe that love is the supreme ethic, and love, by its very nature, requires the freedom of the will. I believe all of that. And yet, Scripture clearly says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And there is no getting around that. It's what it says. And I don't know what that looks like. I really don't. Is the Holy Spirit challenging Pharaoh and convicting him. And so the more that he rejects God and walks down that road, the harder his heart gets. I don't know. I can relate to that. If I think back to my own experience, I know there's nothing worse than that sense of guilt or conviction. It robs you of peace. And because the Holy Spirit is relentless, you're forced to either deal with it and repent or run and turn away from the Lord. Is that what's happening here? I don't, I don't know. Here's what I do know. God isn't turning his back on someone who's desperately seeking after him. Yeah, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but only after Pharaoh hardens it himself. If you look at chapter 7, 8, and 9, you see example after example where Pharaoh hardens his own heart, completely independent of the Lord. It says that either his heart became hard or he hardens his own heart. So this isn't God rejecting someone who's desperately seeking after him. This is God bringing judgment on someone who's made it pretty clear, I want nothing to do with you. 
Do we understand all of that? No. Do we like it? Probably not. But it's not like Pharaoh wasn't given a chance to repent. I put to you, he saw more of the miraculous power of God than you or I ever will. I said, no, I won't bend the knee. As Hebrew 10 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I don't know if we fully appreciate that. Or we really understand the gravity of that. And we emphasize the grace and the love of Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. It's, it's the very center of our faith. But it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Which brings us to the plagues. And what is really a cosmic battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. Now I say that because the Lord could have brought Pharaoh to his knees in any number of ways. He could have sent an angel like he did with Abraham. He could have sent an army of angels like he did with Elisha. And he could have used a foreign power to bring Egypt to its knees. I mean, that's what he did with his own people, but he doesn't do any of that. He uses weapons that only a God could wield and establishes himself as the ruler over all of creation. For that to make sense, you've got to understand, the Egyptians saw the world very differently to you and I. They had gods for everything. And those gods affected everything. So the yearly rains which inundated the Nile and caused it to overflow and then enrich the soil around it, that wasn't just a natural phenomenon. That's what we'd say today. They didn't say that. This isn't just a natural phenomenon. That's the hand of happy. Not happy, H-A-P-P-Y. The Egyptian god happy, H-A-P-I. That's the hand of happy. And they actually believed the Nile flowed through the land of the dead and then through the heavens until it finally flowed into Egypt. And happy was responsible for that. And so every year, they'd throw offerings and sacrifices into the Nile to honor Happy and to maintain his favor. And they saw the Nile itself as the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn every year when the river flooded. That's how they viewed the world. So you've got to understand, when Aaron strikes his staff into the Nile, into the river, and the water turns to blood, they're not just thinking, man, that sucks for the fish. They're thinking, he just killed our God. He just killed our God. Who is this Yahweh? And how does he have the power to do that? He just overcame our God. Well, this isn't God just randomly throwing out plagues. This is God sending a clear message to Pharaoh and to the world. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's the whole point of the plagues. You make your way through all ten plagues and you see that message again and again. The second plague targeted a God called Heket who like most of the Egyptian gods was fairly unusual looking. She's depicted as a woman with the head of a frog. 
And she's strongly associated with frogs in general. And there's a reason for that. It's because frogs were sacred. They were a symbol of fertility and life. And she's a goddess of fertility. So she has a frog head. And what do we see at the end of the second plague? Dead frogs everywhere. Chapter 8, verse 12 says, The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. The message is so clear. Don't waste your time looking to Heket for life. There's nothing there. Because all of this is me. I give life, and I can take it away. I gave you the Nile, and I fill it every year. I alone am worthy of praise because all of this is me. By the time we get to the ninth plague, the magicians are gone. The different characters in this story, we've got Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, the, the magicians. By the time we get there, they're gone. They tapped out. And they say to Pharaoh... This is really incredible. This is the finger of God. That's what they say to Pharaoh. This isn't some kind of trick. This is real and it's beyond us. We see some of Pharaoh's officials come to that same realization. And we even see the Egyptian people begin to fear the Lord because of what they'd seen. The ninth plague is where we really see the climax of that cosmic battle. Because that's where Yahweh takes on Egypt's most powerful and important god, Ra. And most of us know a little bit about Egypt's history, and so we kind of know who Ra is. He's the god of the sun within Egypt's pantheon, right? But what I didn't know is that the Egyptians saw the sun as Ra's chariot, It's not just that he controlled the sun. He rode the sun like a chariot. Every day he rode it across the skies. So when they looked at the sun, they were looking at Ra. He was the father of all creation. And almost like Odin or Zeus and some of the other mythologies, king over all the other gods. And he was the centerpiece of their pantheon. So just imagine the psychological and religious impact as Moses reaches his hand towards the sky and darkness falls over Egypt. They're not just thinking, man, it's dark. That's inconvenient. They're thinking about Ra. What did he just do to Ra? Did his God just kill Ra? And that causes them to pause and to think about their life and what they believe to be true. Because if Yahweh is more powerful than Ra, then we need to make some changes. And it might just be, as Chandler says, that we bet our lives on the wrong horse. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That was Pharaoh's question. Why would I bend the knee to your God when I am a God? I like it better this way. And you might read that and think, that's a little narcissistic, and maybe it is, but Pharaoh's not alone in that. 
We live in a society that is hyper-individualized, where the majority of people are unashamedly living for themselves because as L'Oreal reminds us, you're worth it. That's our society. A lot of people are spiritual, sure, but they pick and choose. So they're not submitting themselves to a higher power. It's a build-a-bear religion where I end up in control. And they might use different language, but it's the same heart. I decide what's right and wrong. I decide who I am and what I'm supposed to do with my life. I decide what's important and I decide what's not. I am, for all intensive purposes, God. I just don't say it. But that's how I live. That's what I believe. It's not just a fair or a problem. This is a people problem because it's a problem of the human heart. And that's why we get to Ezekiel and we see him crying out that the Lord would take away a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That's why we get to the end of Exodus and we see Moses crying out to God about the hardness of his people's heart. Because it's not just Pharaoh, it is all of us that we desperately needed Jesus. And we needed somebody to come and to change us from the inside out to take away the heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. Because the truth is the human heart is incredibly adept at finding reasons why I should stay in control. Despite all the evidence pointing to the fact that actually that's a terrible idea. So who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He's the great I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. That's who he is. See, unlike us, God doesn't need anyone to help define his identity or anything for that matter. If you ask me who I am, I'd say, I'm Daniel. I'm I'm a father. I'm married to Anna. I grew up on the Sunshine Coast, but I lived in WA for about seven years. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm actually a pastor because somebody had a terrible lapse in judgment. Nobody's figured out yet, right? <laughs> I love sports. I love all kinds of sports. I love Daniel Ricciardo. I loved him a little bit more when he actually won races. <laughs> bit of F1 trivia for you, but that's, so I still love him, and I still love sports. I tell you all of this stuff about myself to help you understand who I am because my identity is wrapped up in all of that stuff. And if you were to strip all of that away, you'd find it hard to really know me and to understand who I am, but that's not true for God. When he says to Moses, I am who I am, he's saying, I don't need any of that. There's nothing you could use as a reference point anyway. It's the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency. God's existence and his value and his worth aren't contingent upon anything else. He was and is and is to come. And there's nothing that you could possibly use to add value or weight to that. He is who he is. And he's so unique, so other, so far beyond us. But he just says to Moses, I am who I am. And that's enough. That's the greatness of our God.
He's the Lord. He is Lord. But as Nick said last week, just because we know that and maybe even profess that, that doesn't mean that we live like that. The Lord means master, king, the one to whom we give service and obedience. So the question is, is he Lord of your life? Is that true? I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's probably not that many of you here this morning offering sacrifices to Happy or Heket or Osiris or Isis or whatever else. But I wonder if there's some people here this morning who, in a moment of honesty, would say, you know what, I'm not living in total surrender. Francis Chan once said, every time you hear the voice of the Lord and do nothing, you make it that much easier to hear the voice of the Lord and do nothing. And if you read through this passage, one of the things you'll see is that Pharaoh starts to bargain with God, trying to negotiate with him. I think a part of him is starting to realize, I'm a little out of my depth here. But he's too stubborn and prideful to bend the knee to admit that actually he's not a God. So he tries to negotiate. I think it's really important that you and I see just how uninterested God is in that. He doesn't even respond because the truth is God isn't interested in some half-hearted surrender. He's not interested. But we follow him, but only if it's on our terms, as if we have anything to bring to the table. We don't. That just isn't going to fly with the king of kings. Got another Francis Chan quote for you because I love him. He says, Nowhere in scripture do I see a balanced life with a little bit of God added in as the ideal for us to emulate. Yet when I look at churches, that's exactly what I see. I see a lot of people who have added Jesus into their lives. People who have, in a sense, asked him to join them on their life journey, to follow them wherever they feel like they should go rather than following him as we're commanded. You know, I look back at my life and I can honestly say, this is not my plan, but it's better. I never wanted to be a pastor. I only went to Bible college because I thought the Lord wanted me to to lay some firm foundations for my faith because I'd walked away and obviously I had some work to do. That's what I thought I was going for. I never wanted to come to WA either. And when the church flew us out, I felt so guilty. I actually said to Anna, I feel terrible. I spent all this money flying us over here, but there's no way we're staying. Not a chance. And the Lord started to speak to me. And eventually he made it really clear, this is where I want you to be. So hear me, church, this isn't my plan. It's better. It really is. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He says, I am who I am. My encouragement to you is this, that you would trust him enough to make him Lord. Not just in name, but in reality. That he would truly be the king of your life, he would truly be 
Lord. And I would say to you, don't miss out on the good things that God has for you because you're too busy playing God, thinking that actually you can do this. You're missing out on the good things that God has for you because he truly is good and his ways truly are better. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we come as imperfect people who are just reliant upon the grace of God. That if not for the grace of God, we wouldn't be here. And even our response to your grace is imperfect. But we can give you all that we have, which is ourselves, our lives, and we can give the mustard seed of faith that we have and put it in you. And so we pray, Jesus, forgive us when we think far too much of ourselves, when we try to take back what we say we've surrendered to you. Forgive us, Father, when we call you Lord and then say there's parts of my life, parts of my heart that you're not welcome to speak into. And somehow I think that's not just hypocrisy. Father, we don't understand everything, but we do know that you're good. We look at the cross and we see it. We know that you're good, that you're for us. And so we pray, Jesus, even at step of surrender, we actually need help. Help us to bend the knee. Help us to lay it down. May we be a people who walk in surrender because we believe that our God is good and that he's worthy for all that we are. So Jesus, help us to bend the knee. This we pray for in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Our prayer is that what was said today inspires you and strengthens you in your faith. If you would like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, you can contact the team during office hours on the number you can find on our website at mounties.org.au. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to having your company again soon. God bless.